and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. I'm Mark Gunger, the senior pastor here at Celebration Church. Good to have all of you uh, with us tonight, uh, as well as our campus that joins with us in, in Stevens Point, joining with our Bible study. Uh, they're used to seeing me on video. You guys aren't quite as used. I am not here tonight, obviously, and I am currently in Texas doing a special event uh, for a Latino group down there. We're excited about doing that. Appreciate your prayers as we travel, and God will keep us strong with a strong voice and, and a safe journey as, uh, as we go out there and, and do the things God's called us to do. But we are picking up our Bible study tonight uh, where we left off last time. Now, we are in Galatians, the uh, third chapter. And for those of you who are not familiar, what we do on our Wednesday night Bible studies, we take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse, verse by verse, and discuss it and put it in context and try to understand what is happening with this particular uh, portion of Scripture, uh, all to educate you so you can really start understanding what the Bible is about and so that your biblical literacy can take a jump so that you can be more skilled in the Bible and be less intimidated by it and be able to grow from it. That's the purpose of it. Uh, God has given us his word um, primarily for one reason, so we can grow. You know, I mean, the reason you eat is so you can have energy and stuff to, 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 to do your day. If you quit eating and drinking, eventually you'll die. And spiritually speaking, it, just because you come to faith in Christ, if you don't study the scriptures and you don't pray and you don't do these spiritual exercises, you'll eventually die. Spiritually speaking, you can't continue to res- uh, have the energy you need if you don't take the nourishment in. So we want people to be biblically literate, understand the scriptures so they can jump into it and grow from it and learn from it. Now, we're studying Galatians. This is our third night studying Galatians. And it is a fascinating uh, a book in, in the uh, New Testament, and we call it a book, it's really not a book, it's a letter. Uh, the word epistle, some of you are used to hearing that word in a mainline churches, the epistle. What it means, it, it, that's the word for a letter. These are letters that Paul wrote to the churches at the time. And he's writing this letter to these Galatian Christians. And it's fascinating, those of you who've been with the uh, first two studies, how angry Paul is. This is uh, pretty much the only book in the New Testament or, or letter in the New Testament you can find where he's pretty much ticked off through the whole thing. He is furious because he has poured his heart and his life and his soul into these people, trying to teach them the basics of Christianity, that it's not about... Uh, earning your way to God, but it's about faith in Jesus Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you'll have life and hope. But what happened then is after he started teaching uh, you know, this to them, and they, they were growing in their faith, and he left, then guys came in and started saying, well, no, it's good to believe in Jesus, but you also need to obey all the rules of the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament uh, uh, Levitical law. And it created all this confusion among them, and they were telling them they had to be circumcised, and they had to obey all these rules, and you know, la 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 la. And Paul got absolutely furious about it, and uh, because he had been fighting for some time to uh, justify that uh, people do not have to be Jewish to become a Christian, or if they're Christian, they don't have to then become Jewish again and start obeying all these rules. In fact, he's argued vehemently against it, um, and starts out, you know, talking in the strongest of terms. I mean, when you don't know the context and you read this, you think he's just talking about some other group. You know, he starts out basically saying, you know, these guys ought to go to hell. 
that are doing this, you know, in the first chapter. And then uh, he starts talking about these guys who, you know, are supposedly leaders coming and not uh, really living this like they should. And uh, and you get the impression, boy, he's talking about, you know, these these evil outside forces. Well, he certainly considered them uh, not the best, I'll tell you that. But he's writing about the other Christians, These are the guys, he said, man, if they teach you something contrary to what I tell them, they ought to be eternally condemned. Our version of go to hell. And these guys that he said are so-called leaders and stuff, he's talking about Peter, James, John, the apostles that were in Jerusalem. He was not impressed with these guys. He was ticked off at them. Uh, He even called some of these guys who came in, uh, uh, trying to confuse them, called them false brothers. Well, you think that these are like some weird cults. These were the guys from Jerusalem that came up. And because they were causing this confusion, he considered them false brothers. I mean, he was seriously defending the fact that we don't have to live by the Old Testament in the strongest of terms. And he he talks about how he rebuked Peter in front of everybody. I mean, this guy was kicking butt and taking names. And he wasn't particularly nice, really, when you read this. Quite frankly, when you get the context and understand who he's talking about, the way he's talking about them, you think, wow, he's kind of mean here, you know, almost, almost insulting. Uh, he never really insults. He gets close, he kind of gets right up to the line, you know, and, and looks over at the insult. He takes him right up there. In the strongest of terms, he condemned this thinking uh, in the church. Well, then he starts trying to reason. First of all, he, he starts out yelling. <laughs> then he tries to reason with them. And, and debating Paul would have been quite a difficult thing to do because this guy was brilliant. The man was a genius, even by today's standards. The way this guy could think and process and, 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 and cause his arguments to have meat and, and stand on their own was really fascinating. So he stops uh, uh, you know, with the whole history and the, and, and the anger for a moment and, and starts using reason why we shouldn't be doing the things that they're saying that we should. In other words, that we shouldn't have to listen and follow all these Old Testament rules. He starts talking about Abraham. He says, look, all of this that we experience, even as a Jew, is based on the promises of God given to Abraham. And we talk of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, his son, and his son, and, and how this all went. And all this was hundreds of years, centuries before Moses came along. Moses was the guy who came and started writing, wrote down the law. So he's saying, look, all of this started in faith in the first place. All of this started because one man started believing God. And because he believed God, it uh, was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. Fascinating when you think about it. And they had no defense to this because the Jews believed, yes, everything started with Father Abraham. It all starts with him, all of this stuff. And what he's pointing out is, look... Even the Jewish faith started out purely by faith. Purely by trusting God. Not by following all these rules and regulations. Granted, Abraham did institute circumcision, you know, as, as God spoke to him about this, as, as the sign to mark them, you know, as, as his chosen people. But all these other rules and regulations weren't there. And this was all hundreds of years, centuries, before Moses ever came along. So to say to them, look, even Judaism itself was born in faith. Then the law came along, and he's going to explain in a little bit why it came. But now that the law, that Christ has come, there's no need for the law anymore, is what he's going to basically be arguing. And then talking about, um, we are basically where we started. 
this was started by faith. We had to get under the law for a while. Then Christ came. Now we're back to faith. All of this is based on faith. Not on what you do, but what he has done. Personally, I thank God for it. You know, I'm not a very good religious guy. I don't do everything perfectly. You know, even Paul, he did everything almost perfectly. And even he knew it was nonsense. He was a great uh, a Jewish leader and highly respected of the day. Even persecuted Christians until he became a Christian himself. And then understood, look, it's not about all this. It's about faith in Christ. And now, this really messed with guys because they loved the law. All of their lives, they were, they were raised in this. And they, they were detailed and oriented. And they, they followed each other and made sure everybody obeyed this and that. And then the Pharisees came along and they went nuts, you know, and really took it to extremes. And, you know, and, uh, you know just added to all the burdens that they had to carry. But they all liked this stuff for some bizarre, strange reason. Quite frankly, there are Christians still to this day who love, their temptation is always to go back to this old stuff. What the temptation is, I don't quite get. The only thing I can figure is there is a part of the human psyche, even among Christians, that loves the idea of just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. There's a group of people that are drawn to that. They love that. The idea of living by faith. See, living by faith is is a little scary. It's a little unsettling. It's... Where's the edge? I know there's an edge here somewhere. I know, oh, oh, okay, I think, I think this is it. You know, do I step down? Or is, are there lions and dragons in the pit? You know, you're not quite, it's all always unsettling living by faith. And I think when people come along with real strict regulations, do this, eat that, don't do that, worship this way, don't, don't worship that day, da, da, da. There's a part that I, I think appeals to people who, it really takes them out of faith and they feel more comfortable with it. Because now they can see. What they're seeing is basically garbage. What they're seeing is oppressive. What they're seeing is a drag. But it's like, better the devil I can see than the devil I can't see. And, and I think that's why even Christians to this day seem, many of them, to get drawn into this legalism and even into the Old Testament law because it's something they can feel and touch and taste and kiss and, and, and it makes them feel warm and fuzzy for some bizarre reason. But uh, even though it's oppressive and restrictive. And what Paul was trying to say, look, you don't need all that. But these people loved it. And certainly these Jews loved it. And when Paul came along and said, look, we don't need the law anymore. This really messed with them. All of them. And even these guys he's basically insulting. Remember, these are the founders of the church here. The apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem. Uh, these were good men and women. They loved God. They were, they'd been with Jesus. Uh, all this stuff. But even for them, there's this safety in the rules and the regulations. And Paul is trying to tell them, no, 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 no. So now he has to give an example and try to explain to them why if, if we're getting rid of the law, what was the justification for it in the first place? So we pick it up, chapter 3, verse 15. And it reads this. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. So, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. What is he talking about? If you have a legal binding contract, and this goes back 2,000 years ago still to this day, if you have a legal binding signed contract, um... Others can't just add to it. Legally, it won't hold water. If uh, Bill Gates has a contract with 
uh, some new intellectual property and they sign the binding contract and it's legal and established, I can't walk in and say, you know, I, I don't like the terms of this. I think I want to change it. I can't change it. Any binding legal contract is a binding contract. Others cannot add or detract from it. That's the safety of, of uh, human covenants. Okay? And he says, just like it is that way, so it is in this case. What is he getting at? That in, originally the promise was with Abraham. God gave Abraham the direct covenant, the direct promise. This was what was established. Okay? This is where we go back. So he says in verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture, Paul says, does not say to seeds, plural, meaning many people, but, and, to your seed, meaning one person, which Paul argues is the Christ. This is, this, these were promises of the Messiah. When Abraham said, all of the world, all of the world will be blessed through you and through your seed, he was talking about that the Messiah would come through uh, the seed of Abraham. And indeed, he did. Okay? Now, what I mean is this. Verse 17. The law, and here's where he points it out, was introduced 430 years later. He's underscoring this to these guys. This does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. In other words, you cannot take away the promise. The promise was the, the initial covenant. This was the promise of God to Abraham that came by faith. And just because the law came in, it cannot take away this. We, we admit this popped up, but it does not affect this. He's trying to say the most important part of all of this is the promise, the covenant uh, with Abraham. So, he says, for if the inheritance depends on uh, the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So he asks the question that they're all asking then, as he's been just beating the snot out of them, saying, well, then what's the purpose of the law? What's the purpose of the law? Why would God give us the law, Paul, if what you're saying is true? He says, well, it was added because of transgressions, because of sin, because of lawlessness, because they were just a mess, these people. And let us not forget, what's really bizarre is even with the law, they were a mess. (laughs) Read it. I mean, here are the children of Israel. 400 years in slavery in Egypt, crying, oh, set us free, God, set us free, God, set us free. Abraham comes along, not Abraham, Moses comes along, kicks some serious butt, and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Finally, he lets them go. He brings them into the promised land with miracles that, man, you think, boy, wouldn't it be great to see stuff like that today? Wouldn't wouldn't it be great if God did crazy, wild miracles that the whole world could see? That's what happened. And as soon as Moses goes up into the mountain to get the instructions for the law, in about 30, 40 days, by the time he comes back, these idiots are dancing naked around a cow, worshiping the cow. Oh, hullabal, hullabal, hullabal. Oh, hullabal, hullabal, hullabal. Let's worship the cow. Let's worship the cow. The cow brought us out of Egypt. Good grief. I mean, we're from Wisconsin. I can't imagine worshiping a cow. I don't know what these people were thinking. But they're worshiping this stupid calf made out of gold. Abraham is so hacked off. He throws down the tablets, busts them. I mean, there was hell to pay. Some serious butt kicking. He ground up that calf, threw it in the water, made them drink it. 
I mean, he was talking about Paul being hacked. Abraham was seriously hacked. A bunch of them were killed uh, in judgment. These were people that were getting the law. And, and they, they, they couldn't stay in faith to save their lives. And even after he gave all the details of the law, constantly doubted. For 40 years, these people were such a mess. For 40 years, God made them run around in circles till most of them died off until the next generation could go in and take the land. And it was no sooner than they went and took the land that they're worshiping other idols. You know, one time the people were sick and God sent serpents as a punishment to these people because they were so rebellious and they were dying from poisonous snakes. And Moses interceded for them and and God said, well, if you take a bronze snake and stick it on a pole and if they look at the snake on a stick, then they'll be healed. And sure enough, that's how the the plague was taken care of. Well, the Bible says these newits then took the snake on a stick. And they were worshiping the snake on a stick. I mean, they were incorrigible. These were people who had the law. These were the people who got all these instructions and they were still a mess. God only knows what they would have been if they hadn't had any law at all. So for these people to hang on to something, they think, it's not like something that was working. You know, churches, you know, we're famous for hanging on to stuff that doesn't work. Well, well, it's not working. Yeah, but we've been doing it for 20 years. Well, duh. It's not working. If it's not working, let's let go of it. Who cares how long we've been holding on to it? Let's not be so inflexible and addicted to tradition that we can't move forward with intelligence. If something doesn't work, it stinks, get rid of it. But it wasn't like this thing worked. It wasn't working anyway. And these guys are holding on to something that really didn't have all that big of an impact it seemed on them in the first place. But it all came because of sin. Back to verse 19. It was added because of transgression until the seed, meaning Jesus, to whom the promise referred, had come. The law was put into effect. Well, well, well let me stop right there. So what the, he's saying the purpose of the law was to jerk the slack out of these people until the Messiah came. That was basically it. And as I just pointed out, even that wasn't perfect. They still had problems. I mean, at some point, God had had it with them, and they had to go be taken off into captivity for however many years it was. I mean, it was a mess. These people were constantly, God was kicking their butts, then they would repent, and then they'd sin again, and he'd kick their butts, and then they'd repent, and then they'd sin again, and he'd kick, I mean, it was just over the whole, just, that's what all this big fat part of the Bible is. These people who had this wonderful rules and regulations everybody was wanting, they were still a mess all the time. But it kept some sort of, of focus for them until the seed would come, which was Christ. So his argument is that this law, which came 430 years later in the first place, did not get rid of the original promise, was just there until the promise was fulfilled, which was Christ's coming. And then we're back to faith. Okay? Then he adds this Next line, which is absolutely fascinating. You know, uh, now I might start losing some of you who, who are, are really kind of new to the Bible and stuff, but you guys who've been into this for a while, you'll kind of dig this because it's, it's kind of cool. But, uh, but check this out. He, he starts pointing out that the, the, the law in itself was inferior to the promise. And the way he points it out, he says this, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. What? The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Moses was the mediator. What's this talk of angels? Now apparently it was 
accepted Jewish thought that even though we get the idea that God directly gave Moses the law, apparently that's not exactly true. That's not exactly what happened. We all get that. And of course, we tell the Bible stories, you know, in Sunday school classes and with our kids trying to make it very simple that God came, gave Moses the law, and he heard directly from God, and da 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 da. Well, not, not exactly right. It, uh, now, it's fascinating that they got this because I, I wouldn't come with this conclusion, but you'll see that they came to it. Uh, there's only two places in the Old Testament that even kind of refer to it. One is through Moses' own words in Deuteronomy. Chapter 33, if you, if you flip all the way back, way back at the beginning, the book of Deuteronomy, okay, well, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, okay, uh, chapter 33, verse 2. Well, starting with, with verse 1. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. So Moses is about to die. And he gets up and he pronounces this big, long thing of blessing. We're not going to read all this. Thank heavens. But uh, we're just going to read this first thing he says. He says, uh, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. This is the Mount Sinai that did. he received the law. Okay? And then he makes a statement. He came... With myriads of holy ones from the south. What's he talking about? This is a reference to angels. uh, From his mountain slopes. Now, that's one little obscure verse. And there's even a more obscure one in Psalms. uh, uh, Psalms, uh, I think, chapter 68, verse 17. But uh, we won't need to read that. But, But apparently to the Jews, they understood that what in fact had happened was God certainly was involved. But, uh... Apparently, a lot of this that Moses got was through angels, and it was mediated. In other words, angels would bring these concepts and ideas to Moses, and Moses would learn and listen, and at times would mediate and debate which way these laws would go. Hang with me. I'm going to show you how this works. It's absolutely fascinating. It all makes sense in a second. But let me show you how they they assume this. Look at Acts, the seventh chapter. I'm going to make you jump around here a little bit. All you advanced Bible study guys will kind of get into this, but uh, you other guys can get into this too. Um, uh, Acts, the seventh chapter, verse 53. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, now, this is uh, Stephen. He's the first guy who was um, a martyr for Christianity. And he was one of these guys that, you know... The apostle said, look, we're not going to deal with administrative stuff. We're going to stay in the word. You guys deal with it. And they said, find some spiritual guys to deal with administration. Kind of how our church is trying to run. It's not about the pastor. The pastor doesn't have to do everything. My main focus here is to do what I'm doing to you right now. Teaching you the word of God. That's where I stay focused. I don't get involved in all, every single little detail of the church. There's others who do that. Stephen was one of the guys who did that. He's preaching to these guys. And they get so mad at him. If you keep reading, they stone him to death. But... Um, he's preaching and then he says to this in verse 53 because he's given them a history of, of Judaism and how all this came to part, came to pass. Verse 53 he says, You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. And they all understood that. I mean it was a common understanding. Something that we don't hear when we study the Old Testament that angels were involved in this process of giving of the law. There's another one in uh, Hebrews. 
look at Hebrews. That's on the other side of Galatians here. And can you hop all over the place? Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. Uh, we'll read verse 1. Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Talking about how the Jews kept drifting away from from the faith, if you read it in context. He says, for if the message spoken by angels was binding, what message spoken by angels? This whole deal with Moses receiving the law. That's why Paul, where we, you can get back to Galatians here, that's why he says the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So there's a couple of obscure verses, one through, by Moses' own words, another one in Psalms, and apparently accepted as normal theology among the Jewish people here, as we're reading ourselves, that the law was put into effect by angels with a mediator. What he's trying to do here is saying, look, the promise was directly from God to Abraham. This is of higher value. First of all, you can't add to a covenant like that. But it's inherently of higher value than Moses who received these instructions from angels and acted as a mediator. Now, let me explain this mediator part. Did you ever notice... Look at Matthew. uh, turn Turn to Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. You can turn to the 19th chapter, but... uh, I won't take the time to go through all of it, but you remember how during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus came along and said, you have heard it said this, but I say this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, you so much as look at a woman with dirty thoughts, you're committing adultery. I'll get a bunch of people in trouble right there. He was raising, he says, he was constantly saying, you've heard this, but I say this. When I, when I first was reading that, I, I, I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute. Didn't you say this in the first place? Do you get what I'm talking about? Didn't God say these things in the Old Testament first? And then he's saying, I said this, but now I say this. He's not saying, I said this, and now I'm saying that. He said, you've heard it was said this. Moses told you this, but I'm telling you this. How could that happen? Apparently, not everything in the law was directly a word from God. You see it the clearest in Matthew, the 19th chapter, where Jesus is talking. Um, uh, check this out, where, where they're, uh, they're arguing about divorce. Okay, and Jesus was telling them, you're not supposed to get divorced. Look at verse 7. We'll start with nine, Matthew 19, verse 7. And so they argued back to Jesus. What are you talking about? If we can't get a divorce, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Listen to Jesus' reply. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Pretty high standard here. So what he's literally saying here is, look, I'm straightening some of this stuff out because Moses let you do this. And the only reason he let you do this is because your hearts were so stinking hard. So we really, when you, this one verse in Galatians all of a sudden makes clear how Jesus could say what he was saying. Moses said this, but I say this. A little confusing if you think that was God saying this in the first place. It wasn't all the God, the words of God. It changed. What he's saying is this law that you love so much is inherently, has human failings in it. 
it, it wasn't instituted by God directly. And, and, you know, any Jew who'd hear this would probably freak out. They'd probably freak out when Paul was saying But that's what he's saying. It was instituted by angels. Paul, or Moses was the mediator. Apparently Moses stuck things in that, you know, even the angels probably didn't want. But he's kind of mediating this thing and making things work. And, and Moses was the lawgiver. A lot, of, a lot of what he said wasn't even God saying it. was Moses saying it. These are the rules. This is the way it's going to be. All under the inspiration of God. I get it. But what Paul's trying to let them know is this is inherently more of, a, more of a flawed document than the promise who came directly from God to Abraham. Pretty radical stuff. So, uh, where in the world was I? So, at the end of verse uh, 19, the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party. That's where he's getting, and he says, but God is one, although God is one. But, but uh, again, pointing out God directly to Abraham was one. As a mediator, doesn't re- represent just one party. He's representing the interests of the angels and the interests of the people. That's why Moses, even though it wasn't that way from the beginning, Jesus said, but Moses let you do that. He was mediating, again, stressing that this law is more of a human document than you realize. Whew. Interesting, fascinating stuff. Okay. Now, is the law then, he's answering another question. He poses the question and then answers that, which is helpful because every once in a while he answers questions you haven't heard and you get confused. But he says, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Are you saying that this is contrary to what Abraham got? He said, no, absolutely not. If a law could have been given that would have been part of life, though, righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. All of this comes through faith. Verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. The law kind of kept us locked up. Kind of tried to jerk the slack out of us. Although imperfectly, as I've already pointed out to you. Itself was imperfect and it had an imperfect effect on them, but it did help. But he says, all this was locked up in faith until uh, faith should be uh, locked up by the law. Until faith should be revealed. Verse 24, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, he says, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Fascinating stuff. I mean, honestly, when, when you read this, I honestly shake my head every time I, I see believers getting all, you know, psyched out and excited about messianic promises and Judaic principles and going back to the old law and we got to do this and don't eat, you know, squirrels and creepy crawly things and pigs. And, and, and I, how a Christian misses all this blows my mind. We, there's whole denominations, quite frankly, <laughs> That miss this. They clearly mean think all this means something else. I don't know what they think it means, but it just seems pretty clear to me. We are free, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, <laughs> free at last. We are free from all this repressive rules. And I'm telling you, these rules that some of these people. They try and pick and choose what they like and what they don't like. And he says here in a little bit later, listen, if you obey any of it, you've got to obey all of it. 
man, I mean, these guys, they, they told you when you could get up, when you could work, when, not when you could get up, but when you could work, when you couldn't work, you know, when you could make love to your wife, when you couldn't make love to your wife. I mean, these, these guys were not messing around. These guys had rules for everything. Just bizarre rules. Just... <laughs> I think some of you remember this. I preached this, I don't know, maybe it was last year or something when I first got here, but talking about some of these rules. They had a rule in the Old Testament what to do if during a fight some one guy grabs the other guy by the gonads. What a bizarre rule. I mean, there's that much gonad grabbing that we got to come up with rules on this stuff. I mean, it was, these guys had rules for everything. It was absolutely Amazing and fascinating. We don't need to go back to that stuff. So he continues writing his letter. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And then he makes this fascinating statement. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Greek meaning people who aren't Jews. You know, Gentiles, people like you and me. There is no Jew or Greek, not in Christ. There is no slave or free, not in Christ. Here is a very radical statement for the time. There is no male or female, not in Christ. Christianity is the first major religion ever to lift women up to the same status as men. Now Paul, you wouldn't think that because he wrote some pretty restrictive things about women that we'll eventually run into through the New Testament as we study it. But most of that is culturally driven and and I'll explain why he thought in those terms. But he never was trying to say women didn't have the same access to God that we have. He says clearly right here, uh, in Christ there is no difference between men or women, Jew, Gentile. In Christ we are all one. Male or free. So you're all one in Christ Jesus is the end of that verse. If you, all, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what he's saying is if you belong to Christ, then instead of being part of this imperfect system that came centuries after the promise. That through Christ you go straight for the promise. We as believers in Christ um, don't need to go through this old system. Okay. Now what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child he's using another analogy here. Chapter 4. Again. They put these chapter numbers in later. He didn't have any chapters. He was just writing a letter. What I'm saying is, as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. What is he talking? He's using a different analogy here. Now, um, if I were a multi-gazillionaire, which I'm not, I'm sure my children and grandchildren wish I was, but I'm not. But if I was very, very wealthy and I uh, decided to put a trust, for example, for Parker and for Kean and Monty, my grandchildren, who are just little itty-bitty rugrats, um, they would have legal access at some point, even though they own all that money, they don't get dibs on it. They are no different than everybody else. What Paul says, they're no different than a slave. And in fact, a child, because what you have are uh, you know, trustees that enforce the, the trust. You've got to listen to them until you become of age. And then once you become of age, then you get access to all the money. So, even though he says these children really own all this money, they don't get it. They're treated no different. They, they are under the control of the trustee until they become of age and get it. So that's his analogy here. So, um, he says in verse 2, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. 
That's what I just said. So also, when we were children, talking about the Jewish nation by faith, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, and the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. Abba, Father. Abba is what these, uh, what the, what the uh, little uh, Greek boys of the day would call their dads. You know, daddy, 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 Abba, 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 Abba. It was a very intimate word. So intimate they didn't even translate it. They just left it, Abba. Um, you know, because this is, this, is, this is how we have relationship with God. All of this, we are now sons and daughters of God uh, because of what Christ has done. So what he's saying is the law was really the, the guardian. Okay? The law was the trustee. It was the thing to kind of keep us in line until we came of age. And he says, of age is when God sent his son, born of a woman, who was the Christ and redeemed us from all this stuff. And now through faith we're born again. We can have a personal relationship with Christ. We can know God in, in, in a direct way. This makes us sons of God, daughters of God. And because now we're that, we don't need the trustee. That's what he's saying. And, and this is interesting stuff. It's, you know, it's hard to trust people. It makes people nervous. Um, while we don't really deal so much with the uh, literal Old Testament law rules, although on occasion you'll see Christians running to that. It happens every so many years, it seems like. You'll see people drawn to that ridiculous standard again. But as I said last week, you know, churches have created their own laws, you know. It's not the law of Moses, but our own laws, you know. You can't, you know, drink because you might get drunk and you can't dance because it might lead to sex and you can't uh, watch TV because, I don't know, whatever the different thing. They had all these, or you couldn't roller skate, you couldn't smoke cigarettes, you couldn't, you know, which is a, obviously a stupid thing to do now because cigarettes will kill you. But they didn't know that back then. They were just being stubborn about everything. They had rules about everything. How long you're here. I'm telling you, when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ, and, and I'm talking Pentecostal churches, where we all got saved in the 70s through the Jesus movement. It was a great revival. Some of you guys will remember this time. And we came to church. You think these churches would be thrilled to see these hippies coming to Jesus. Those of you who were there at the time will remember they were not. By and large. They all had a cow. Because we came in and we had long hair. We had long hair. You can't let people in church with long hair. We come to church and we had holes in our jeans. You can't let people come to church without holes. We came to church without socks and shoes. We were hippies for crying out loud. We just thought Jesus was cool. We got saved. Wow. So we come to church and a lot of churches. I was fortunate that we had a church that accepted us. But a lot of churches, and, and I ran into them later, were more worried about the length of our hair than the transformation in our heart. It, it, it was like modern day uh, Phariseeism. You know, they were more concerned about the kind of music that we listen to. And you can't have music with a guitar and a drum. That's the devil's music. I mean, this is the stuff we heard in the 70s. I mean, the fact, 
I, honestly, I never cease to be amazed. It was such a struggle in those early days. And some of you older ones will remember. Every time I come into this church and in churches around the country as I travel and I watch these worship teams get up and the drummers are kicking and the guitars are jamming and the, everybody, I just shake my head thinking, wow, we've come a long way, baby. Because when we were trying to do that, the churches of the day had a cow. The good news is they all got too old and finally died and got out of the way. What a terrible thing to say about people. But for crying out loud, they were so anal about things that didn't matter because they were like Pharisees. They, they want to control everything. And, and we're doing this because we, 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 we can't let this happen. And we, we can't let that. And we've got to make sure that they don't do these things lest some terrible things happen. And, and, and boys can't look at girls and you can't shake hands. You might have sex or something. You know, they were just totally over the top. Now, you got to be careful about a lot of these things. I get it. But to be so legalistic and ridiculous because people are afraid to really trust God. Here's here's the thing. What he's saying here is because Christ has come, these very uh, uh, oppressive legalistic rules are not needed. Because now we are sons and daughters of Christ. And if we let the Holy Spirit lead and guide us, uh, it will take us into the truth. Now, does that mean the church shouldn't have standards? No. We should have standards. And we do have standards. Quite frankly, I get my fair share of static from people every time I take a stand on anything. You know, we, we preach, you know, that we love everybody and everybody's welcome and it's not about rules and regulations. And then someone will come up to me and say, you know, is it okay if I look at porn? And I go, no. And then they get upset. You say you accept everybody. (laughs) We accept everybody. Wrong is wrong. You know, there's a difference between grace and grease. We're not trying to just grease everybody so you can just slide around doing whatever the heck you want to do. There's still standards. But there's a different thing between standards and legalistic nitpicking craziness. I hope you understand that. I'm not talking grease. I'm not saying, you know, this is we all love Jesus free for all. Everybody do whatever they want to do. You know, every while someone will come to me and say, you know, I... I want to divorce my husband. Is that okay? And I'll say, no, it's not okay. And they just have a cow. They freak out and they scream and holler and say, you, you say you accept people, but you don't. You know? Again, they think I'm talking Greece. I'm not talking Greece. I'm talking grace. Uh, I've had on several occasions. Now, now, some of you sitting here might be involved in this one because this happens to me a lot. I'm not thinking of just you. But one of the things I get a lot from women are they want to date and marry unsaved guys. And I say, well, is it okay for me to marry an unsaved guy? And I look at them and say, no, it's not. The Bible's very clear on it. No, it's not. And as soon as I say that, you say you accept people. You don't accept people. Can... Whoa, take a pill. Nobody's condemning anybody, but there's a difference between condemning people and talking about God's word and the standards. These are New Testament standards that we're supposed to live by. These people who think that because we believe in grace that anything goes are people who do not believe in grace. They want grease and they want to slatter onto whatever they want to do. And no matter what I do, I know it's not right, but God still loves me. I know it's not right, but God still cares about me. I know, no. If it's not right, no. If it's not right, don't do it. It's pretty simple. 
Okay? But we can trust God. Beyond that, we can just trust God. Look, this is what's right. This is the Bible. The New Testament, very clear about what's right and wrong. We live by those standards. But we don't need to come and help God with those standards. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, we don't need to come up with all these super structured legalism type things because we can trust that God will do his work in the church through his people based on our relationship and our standing with God. We don't need to be helping God with legalistic stands. Just do not confuse that. As much as we talk about acceptance and forgiving and receiving people, and we are very forgiving and accepting. Man, you want to walk in church and say you're a Satan worshiper? Good to see you. Have a seat. I mean, we'll, we'll accept anybody in here. But if he says, is it okay to worship the devil? No, it's not. Well, you say you accept... <laughs> I don't know what some people are thinking. We are not talking some big greasy deal here where it doesn't matter what you do as long as you say, I love Jesus. You need to do the right things. But there's a difference between that and oppressive legalistic things. I hope you're getting this and I've just repeated myself three times in a row and I think you get the point. Okay, next Wednesday night, we will pick it up from here and we will continue to look at this fabulous book about what it means to truly know God as the fundamental basis by faith, not by works. We'll see you next Wednesday night. God bless.